from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. Even if you just contributed like a buck a month, it would help me reach my goal of being able to bring you more content with more visuals and perhaps interviews with professionals and so on. So just keep that in mind. So today's podcast was voted for by patrons and is part two on the family annihilator, Josh Powell. In part one, we went over his father, Stephen Powell's childhood and life, because I find it incredibly important to fully understand the whole picture behind Josh and his actions. We often talk about generational trauma, and I believe this to be at least a big influence in this story and the horrible outcome of it. So we ended part one with Josh joining the Institution of Religion, which is an organization that provides a sort of religious education for young adults who are members of the Mormon Church. The LDS Church describes the purpose of the Institute program as, quote, weekly religious instruction for single and married post-secondary students, end quote. So one gets the sense that it's a religious singles meeting situation, if you know what I mean. And it was at one of these functions that 24, almost 25-year-old Josh met 29-year-old Susan Marie Cox. Since this podcast is really about Josh, I won't get into Susan's whole backstory, but there really isn't any real trauma or negative things to say. She was born into a good family that were also devout Mormons. Her parents loved each other, loved her, were good to her. There were no mentions of negative sibling relationships, nothing. It was all flowers and sunshine. Susan was a bit of a hopeless romantic, loved by nearly everyone. If I had found anything negative, I promise I would have told you, but there just wasn't anything. After she graduated high school, she went to cosmetology school and dreamed of owning and running her own salon someday. She was a stunning young woman, as most of you already know. And as most young adult single Mormons do, she and her sisters would go to the Institute of Religion gatherings to mingle with other single young adults in a chaperoned, safe environment. Okay, So Susan's father, Chuck, said it was basically a marriage pool. And at just 19 years old, she met almost 25-year-old Josh Powell in November of 2000. Now, sources say that Susan fell for Josh quick. He successfully advertised himself as being devout, 
as devout as she. He communicated that he believed in all of the Mormon tenets or beliefs, and she thought him to be a mature older than her man, if you know what I mean. I mean, he was nearly six years older than her. But her family had a bit of a different impression of the young man. Chuck would later say that he felt that Josh was hunting for that perfect, subservient young lady who absolutely believed that he was the ruler of the house. And though one gets the impression that they did try to get Susan's attention about this, her father said she was completely in love and there was no talking her out of being with Josh. And I mean, sure, she knew he was socially awkward and came across as a little arrogant, but she didn't mind. She would try to include Josh into all of the social events she normally went to so that, you know, perhaps he would come out of his shell a bit. Her parents said they believed she wanted to help him. Her older sister, Mary, had actually caught Josh's eye before Susan, and she had utterly rejected him. Mary tried to warn Susan about not dating Josh, that she had a bad feeling about him, but, you know, Susan would hear none of it. But Mary was spot on in trying to get Susan to see Josh for who he really was. One seemingly obvious trait was that Josh was a habitual liar. And if he was telling some shred of truth, it was nearly always greatly exaggerated. He lied to her about having a degree in business administration from the University of Washington. He boasted about knowing more than his professors did. And in fact, he absolutely delighted in talking about himself and his, quote, accomplishments. Once Josh opened up, according to Chuck, he quite frankly couldn't shut up about himself. And again, Susan saw, you know, an awkward kind of nerd who had a job, his own car, his own apartment, a proper grown-up who must be quite responsible to be keeping up with all of that. He simply must be ready to settle down, right? Get married, start playing house. Only Josh was far from stable. He pretty quickly asked Susan to marry him, and even though her family again tried to get her to see reason, she said yes. Now, according to Anne Rule's book, quote, Fatal Friends, Deadly Neighbors, Crime Files, Volume 6, there was a rather upsetting issue during Susan's bridal shower. Her mother and a small handful of friends threw her a bridal shower and were all gathered when none other Then Josh Powell walked in, nearly burst in, dressed as a woman, including apparently a lot of makeup. Susan's mother later said that he had dressed up as a woman because he had wanted to come to the bridal shower. She said that it was wholly inappropriate and embarrassing. Susan was apparently mortified, but she pushed through and forgave on to the wedding. So Josh and Susan got married in April of 2001 in the Portland LDS Temple in Oregon, only six months after meeting Josh. Now, for a few rare couples, this is fine. But for most people, that is not near long enough. But regardless, the wedding seemed to go off without a hitch, as they say. Both looked happy in their wedding photos. After the marriage, Josh and Susan moved in with his father, Stephen, for a short while. And it was during this time that Stephen became absolutely obsessed, all-consumed, 
with Susan. Really obsessed, consumed, still really isn't strong enough. He wrote in journals and recorded himself on his camcorder talking about how aroused he was nearly the entire time that he would be in her presence. He talked about her having a cold or a flu at one point, and he went to rub her feet and calves, and he convinced himself that she was completely into it, that she welcomed his advances. Now, it's easy to say that, you know, you'd step up. You've had words, you would draw lines, give loud and clear boundaries. But Susan was in love with his son. I'm sure she didn't want to make waves or cause drama in this brand new family dynamic and union. But Stephen still continued to take it to a level of inappropriateness, the likes of which you've only heard about. He took a small mirror and slid it under the door to watch her in the bathroom in varying stages of undress. He read her journals, her most intimate thoughts. When she would groom herself, you know, give herself a little pedicure, if you will, while he would collect the nail clippings. He would steal her um, end-of-the-day underwear, if you will, to try to be polite here. He collected enough that he began grouping it and bagging it up, these gallon Ziploc bags, right? Stephen went as far as to collect her um, used down-for-maintenance supplies, her used monthly supplies, if you will. So very proud Stephen was of his masterful collection, He even wrote love songs about her and posted them online under a fake name. That is so completely fucking horrifying. I don't even know. He followed her when she would go to work so that he could film her getting in and out of her car or walking with coworkers. Stalked her, quite frankly. He would record her legs as she sat perfectly still, modestly dressed, engrossed in something she was either reading or writing. There is footage of this. All of the footage actually is available on YouTube. It's all there. It was also said that Stephen actually sent Susan nude photos of himself. Can you imagine? Your father-in-law? So at some point later on, she had unfortunately been in need of her father-in-law to give her a ride to her parents' house. And while on the ride, Stephen had accidentally recorded himself professing his undying love for her while they were barreling down the road, right, at whatever speed, in a car, trapped, alone. Can you imagine how cornered she must have felt? He told her that he was completely in love with her and that he thought she felt the same. Her response was impressively calm, really, as she told him that she was his son's wife and only once removed from his own children. She told him her father did not kiss her and that she did not appreciate it when Stephen kissed her. She let him know, as intimidated as I think she was most likely, as she sounded very cringed in the audio, that she wanted their dynamic to be nothing more than extended family. So the next time she was alone with Josh, she told him what his father had done. She reiterated that she had been a victim of his unwanted unwarranted, inappropriate sexual advances since the marriage, and she was very uncomfortable. All the things. Imagine the disappointment melt across her face when Josh told her that, well, you know, that's my dad. Nothing more. 
I feel like she would have been absolutely crushed. Stephen had even proposed that he and Josh share Susan. Oh, it's so vile. It is so vile. But as luck would have it, the pair got the opportunity to relocate to Utah, to leave Washington and get away from Josh's father. Josh had a career opportunity there, and so did Susan, and really they were going to set them up with an apartment, the whole situation. It was a great deal, except that Josh lost that job, and they had to move into a different place, and it didn't take him long to find another job, but then he would lose that one too, and they'd have to move yet again. Josh complained that his bosses were ignorant, that these jobs were beneath him, quite frankly. He was far too intelligent for this menial job. You get the point. What he really wanted was complete and total control. I think we can all agree on that. Susan could plainly see that Josh couldn't get along with or tolerate other people. But still, Josh was her husband. And according to her faith, you did not get divorced. She would find a way to make it work. Mostly Josh worked computer programming jobs or website building, and Susan was actually working as a sort of stockbroker for Wells Fargo to make more money for them because Josh had a bit of a spending habit. But more on that in a bit, really. And as badly as Susan was trying to keep the marriage afloat, she was also enduring Josh's tendencies to be quite possessive and controlling. And, you know, we can all imagine how it bothered her that once they moved back to Washington, Josh spent more and more time with his father. The correlation being, the more time Josh spent with Stephen, the more cold and distant, yet controlling and possessive, Josh became. At some point, they went back to Utah. And at this point, Susan had already given birth to their first child, Charles Joshua, or Charlie, during the winter of 2005. The birth experience itself was sort of marred by the fact that Josh showed up with a laptop and worked on his computer while Susan worked at delivering their baby. Her father, Chuck, had to really bark at Josh to put the computer away just as the birth was nearly over. And once baby Charlie was wrapped up and good to go, Josh held his newborn infant son lovingly. Susan's parents said that it was at that moment they saw Josh really absorbing the fact that Charlie was his. Charlie belonged to him. They didn't really even get to hold their brand new grandbaby. At some point, Josh decided that he wanted to go into real estate. So he took the money that Susan had been painstakingly saving up so she could open that salon that she wanted, and he used it to buy the very expensive but necessary items needed to sell houses such as business cards, signs, lock boxes, what have you. And Josh found some modest success in this industry and even talked Susan into getting her real estate license, but she also kept her day job for the predictable income and health insurance, you know, the benefits. Josh talked her into getting a life insurance policy on each of them, half a million dollars worth each, so that if anything should happen, the other would be well taken care of. And then Susan found she was pregnant with baby number two, Brayden, who was born in the winter of 07. Josh really seemed to enjoy being a father. We can give him that. 
While he began really treating Susan rather coldly and nearly abusively, he was affectionate with their two small sons. Susan was at this point very upset that Josh had just stopped going to church functions. She had thought she married this man, you know, who was very faithful to their religion that she had been brought up in, and now he was refusing to go. And Josh's spending had gotten out of control. And the same year that Braden was born, the couple were forced to file for bankruptcy. They had reported that Josh owed over $200,000 in debt. Susan confided in her friends, as in her journals, that Josh was now withholding any real affection from her as well. He wouldn't touch her in any romantic way. It was said that he kept her strictly at arm's length. It is as if Josh took the way his parents, and namely his father, treated their marriage and just kind of carbon copied it right into his. And it is important to not lose sight of the fact that Stephen was ever present in Susan's world still, making her so very uncomfortable with his advances on her that really never stopped. So she spoke with someone that she went to church with and again confided in her friends about how upset she was that their marriage was crumbling before her very eyes. Finally, unbeknownst to Josh, Susan decided to contact an attorney. Now from an article written for the Desert News, quote, it was the evening of Friday, June 27th, 2008. Powell and her husband Josh had just gone through the worst argument of their marriage Susan had said the fight had rocked her so deeply, she felt it important to record the play-by-play as evidence. Susan recounted a shouting match over the two primary sources of friction in her marriage, faith and finances. Josh wanted her to buy food at prices that really do not exist anymore and said that their marriage would be fixed if only Susan fixed food for him and he had good food in his stomach. He even allegedly told her that during the very real recession the U.S. was in that year, that they'd probably have to move out of the country, which is completely outrageous and very much terrified Susan. Susan told Josh that she would like to be able to keep her income separate from his for a few reasons, but one of those, aside from the beauty shop, was that the Mormon church demands 10% of your income, no questions asked, and very little to no argument accepted. Now, I have a friend that escaped the Mormon faith, so I know this to be true. Josh replied that she was just a religious fanatic, dismissing her want to remain faithful to her church's teachings. Josh told her that if she asked him for a divorce, well, there would be no lawyers, that there would just be a mediator, and that he would absolutely ruin her. He gaslighted her so very badly, telling her that their sons wouldn't grow up with a mom and dad together. She went to work, and she began writing. An example of her writing was, quote, I bike to work daily and have been having extreme marital stress for about three to four years now. For mine and my children's safety, I feel the need to have a paper trail at work which would not be accessible to my husband, end quote. The attorney she contacted told her that she needed to get proof of all of their assets now while she decided on what to do. So Susan took a camcorder and walked around their home, taking footage of the many 
expensive computers and monitors that Josh had, including one tower that was holding five hard drives in it. The plethora of very expensive name brand tools that he hadn't used very much. TVs, locked filing cabinets full of Josh's, quote, documents, whatever the hell that means. His stockpile of thousands of pounds of wheat. His RC toy cars and accessories. Even his television remote that cost $300, if you can believe anyone would even pay that. And about half of it was included into the bankruptcy and the other half he had begun to hoard after the bankruptcy. Susan also wrote a secret will that included the statements, quote, I want it documented that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage. If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one, end quote. She actually obtained a safety deposit box at a Wells Fargo Bank branch near her work in 2008. She moved the last will and testament there along with U.S. savings bonds and various legal documents that might prove useful if she were ever to flee her home with her sons. She let a few trusted co-workers in on her paper trail she hid at her work. She told them, if something ever happens to me, make sure they look at Josh. A co-worker replied, what do you mean? Has he threatened you? Susan replied, no, it's just the way he talks. So as anyone can imagine, Susan was mentally exhausted. Due to the recession at that time, no one was buying houses, and therefore there was no income coming in from Josh. Susan again had wanted to save money to open the salon out of their home so that she could make money and also be at home with her boys, but saving money was just never really possible for them. She was the breadwinner after all, and her boys were counting on her. Only Josh controlled the finances and would tell her exactly what she could and could not spend on necessities. If she even tried to get money out of the ATM, she would be met with Josh having changed the PIN number yet again. Oh, I'd be so pissed. She had zero access to the money that only she was earning. If Susan told Josh she needed to go to the grocery store, as an example, he would make her scan all of the ads to find the cheapest version of whatever they needed, and he would list those with the prices in a spreadsheet. When she got home, he would compare the ad prices and the receipt prices to make sure they matched, and if they didn't, he would get angry and become verbally belligerent. So, side note here, if I may rant for a moment. The absolute gas money that she was wasting driving all over hell and creation to get these, uh, you know, reduced or sale prices does not help in saving any money on the grocery bill. I'm just saying. So as you can imagine, they weren't really eating very healthy either. And a couple of sources said, which surprised me, that the only protein she could afford or he would allow her to afford were hot dogs unless he allowed her to actually buy a carton of eggs. So just let that marinate, okay? The absolute dumpster fire of control that he had to have over her. So when Josh was confronted by Susan about trying to save their marriage, he was flippant. He was dismissive. 
When she suggested marriage counseling, well, he flat out refused, stating that then everyone would know their business and they'd lose those big life insurance policies. Now, side note, that's not how that works. Was he perhaps scared that the counselor would see him for the narcissistic, abusive asshole that he was? That wouldn't be enough to lose life insurance policies. And to add to that, why was he always bringing up the life insurance policies? Were it me, I'd instantly be scared that he was planning to kill me as well. But I kind of ride in that paranoid lane. So Josh's compromise about his refusal to get counseling was that he apparently made a list of things she could do or changes she could make so he wouldn't be, quote, stressed and then, well, their marriage and everything would be fine, right? Susan would still get the children up and ready for church on Sundays and Josh would intervene, telling the boys that they should stay home and eat cake with daddy instead of going to boring church with mommy. So in the later fall of 2009, things seemed to be looking up for the couple, at least financially. The now 33-year-old Josh was hired on full-time to do the bookkeeping and general computer things at a trucking company. Finally, there would be two incomes coming into the home. Many, including Susan's parents, breathed this kind of sigh of relief. But within the marriage, Josh was still verbally abusive. There were some hints that he might have at least at one time been physically abusive. He acted infantile and spoke poorly about her to her own sons. So, Susan set a date. April of the next year is all the time she would give it. And if Josh's behavior towards her and their marriage and their life situation did not improve... If he lost this job like he had lost so many others, if things overall didn't change, she would take the boys and she would leave him. Sunday morning on December 6th, 2009, Susan got up. She got the boys ready. She went to church. Per protocol, Josh was not going to be joining them. They returned and hunkered in for the rest of the day. It was very cold. It was a blustery winter day indeed. But a neighbor dropped by to visit with Susan for a bit and out of nowhere. Josh not only welcomed the neighbor's visit, but he happily announced he would be making them pancakes. Now, you must understand just how out of character this was for him. All sources said he never cooked. That was the woman's job. But he put on quite the display of making sure the pancakes were perfect and divvied out specific ones on specific plates. He set Susan's plate directly in front of her, anxiously awaiting for her to dig right in. And so she did. But it wasn't long after eating the pancakes that Susan began to not feel very good. She felt quite tired. She had a headache. She was lethargic even. Around 5 p.m., she got sick to her stomach and made her apologies to her neighbor and friend, stating she really wasn't feeling well and that she was going to lie down. The neighbor was, of course, sympathetic, as any of us would be, wished her a speedy recovery, and left to go back to her own home. Josh announced he was going to take the boys outside to play and go sledding whilst she rested. And that was the last time anyone saw Susan alive again. 
Now, neighbors would report seeing Josh return back home, driving the family minivan into the garage, as most all people do when it is so very cold. So, citing Ann Rule's book again, she wrote that another neighbor had gotten up in the middle of the night, suffering from the flu, at about 2 a.m. That neighbor allegedly heard a male voice coming from the direction of the Powell household saying, Get in the car! Get in the car! This was followed by a female voice saying, No! No, you're going to hurt me if I do! The neighbor assumed the woman must have gotten into the vehicle because she then heard screeching brakes, followed by the man saying, get back in the car right now. The neighbor looked out of the window and saw a light-colored minivan driving quickly away. This neighbor did not call the police, figuring, as most of us would have in a safe, quiet, middle-class neighborhood, that it was just a couple fighting, as they do, and she let it go. She regretted that. So, Monday morning, Josh didn't show up to work, and Susan also was a no-call, no-show, which was immediately a cause for concern. She wasn't one to miss work, ever. Also, the boys were never dropped off at daycare. Phone calls were immediately made, and no one could get a hold of either Josh or Susan, and the panic began to set in quickly. By 10 a.m., the daycare had called Josh's mother, and then Terry, his mom, in turn, called the police for a welfare check. Now, usually the authorities wait a bit before filing a missing persons report, but whether it was the desperation in Terry's voice or perhaps the fact that a four-year-old and a two-year-old little boy were missing lit a fire, but the missing persons report was made quickly. Also at this time, Terry and Josh's oldest sibling, Jennifer, immediately drove over to Josh's house to begin attempting to make contact. The police got there, and after getting no response, they broke into the home. Sources said that they were afraid that the family had been victims of carbon monoxide poisoning due to the symptoms of Susan's feeling ill the night before, or that could have been a contributing factor to them coming to that conclusion. They immediately found, once they gained entry, that no one was in the house. There were no signs of its inhabitants. But what they did find was quite telling. So in the living room were two box fans on the floor, running. One in front of the TV stand and one near the next wall to the left on the floor, pointing at a rather big wet spot on the carpet and on the couch. They found that Susan's purse, with her wallet and all of the necessary things that we women keep in our purses, were also still in the house. Now, folks, it is a very rare moment, and especially with small children, that a woman would leave her purse with her ID, her money, everything at home. Josh's sister, Jennifer, kept trying Josh's cell phone, and then he finally picked up in the very late afternoon. She asked him, where are you? And he said that he was at work. She confronted him. She told him she knew that he was lying. So he broke down and he told her that he had taken the boys camping overnight. She told him to go straight home because the police were waiting for him there. Get this. He then asked Jennifer how much she knew. Quite a confusing and yet telling question. And then he hung up. One of the officers used Jennifer's phone to call Josh back. 
When Josh answered, the officer told him he was expected at his home presently. Josh said that, well, you know, I need to get the boys something to eat first, but then I'll come right home. So after 5 p.m. later that afternoon, le poof, Josh shows up back at home with the two boys unharmed. The absolute cleansing, deep breath, I'm sure Terry and Jennifer sighed when they knew that Josh and the boys were unharmed. Can you imagine? The police approached the minivan before Josh could even exit the vehicle. When asked why he wasn't answering his phone, he told them that he had to turn his cell phone off to conserve the battery. Only the officer could see quite plainly that the phone was plugged into the van to charge via a charging cable. But the boys were perfectly safe and secure in the back seats. The only one missing was Susan. Josh was then questioned about what happened and, where is your wife? Well, Josh said that he knew Susan wasn't feeling good, so he left her sleeping on the couch at home shortly after midnight. He claimed he had taken his boys on a camping trip to Simpson Springs in western Utah. This is a nearly two-hour drive one way, mostly south and west of their home, out in the desert. Taking two very young children out in the middle of the night to go camping on a Sunday night before work in the morning? Very odd. Also, the weather was atrocious, blizzard conditions, they say, and well below freezing. And in a minivan? Very, very suspicious. So the police went out to the alleged campsite three days later, and there was zero evidence that anyone had been there camping at all. Josh was asked why he would take his small son's camping overnight, in the middle of the night, interrupting their sleep schedules and whatnot on a work and daycare night. Josh's response was that he had mistaken the day and thought it was Saturday, not Sunday. Lies. Susan had taken the boys to church and whatnot. I mean, how could he forget? There is no way that he miscalculated what the day was. He told the police he had no idea where Susan was. Last time he had seen her was on the couch, sleeping while he took the boys in the middle of the night. Now, guys, listen. Any parents out there with very small children know that there is a zero chance that Susan didn't wake up when those boys were being roused from their peaceful slumber for a late night, impromptu, into a blizzard, camping trip with their father alone without her. I do not believe that for one single second. I believe that Susan would have absolutely refused to let him take those boys out in the middle of the night in those weather conditions. I believe that she would have taken the chance of Josh losing his temper before she would allow that to happen. I'ma tell you, there would have been zero chance I would have allowed that to happen. He would have to pry them from my cold, dead fingers, which could very well be what happened. But regardless, a search warrant was secured for searching Josh's house. The source material varied slightly with regards to Susan's cell phone. Some say the phone was found in the house along with her purse and other vital belongings that women would not leave behind. Other sources say her phone was actually found inside the family minivan, but which location is immaterial because it wasn't with Susan and that was most unlike her, and especially so if she had known Josh had her boys out in a blizzard. I'm just saying, 
Oh, and the SIM cards had been removed out of both Josh's and Susan's cell phones. Convenient. There were traces of Susan's blood on that very couch that the fans were blowing on, but there were also traces of blood from an unknown male there as well. They found that Josh had a $1.5 million life insurance policy on Susan that he had taken out pretty recently. And they also found some hidden documents that Susan herself had written, explaining that she was scared for her life, that if anything happened to her, it was most likely Josh. And Josh wasted no time trying to cash in her retirement savings account. He canceled long-standing medical appointments she had and also dropped the boys out of daycare. Now, if your spouse was missing, you wouldn't go around doing these things if you had real hope that they were going to return. The authorities decided to question Charlie, who was four years old at the time, the oldest boy, and they asked him about the situation. I've added a link to that interview in the notes. At first, Charlie says that mommy is at work. Then he said she was at the beach, though there is an area not far from her work with a pond, and to a four-year-old, that could look like a beach. He also said that they took an airplane to the campsite. But Charlie had been adamant that his mother had gone camping with them, but she had stayed at the park. Little Brayden would later tell a teacher that his mommy was dead and that she had been in the trunk. So as it turned out, it came to light that Josh had spoken to some of his co-workers about how one could very easily hide a body out in the Utah desert and that the best place for that would be an abandoned mine shaft. Curious, although I think my co-workers would probably not question me saying that either. But regardless, Josh was being witnessed thoroughly cleaning out his van along with the multitude of other discrepancies, and they officially named Josh as a person of interest in Susan's disappearance. So after Josh's police interview, he lawyered up. They seized the minivan and he rented a car where he proceeded to drive hundreds of miles. Unfortunately, there was no GPS tracking on that vehicle. And people immediately noticed that Josh's hands were incredibly red and sore looking like windburned. He had gone out and done something in the punishing winter winds of Utah and used his hands extensively with no gloves. And yet, with all of this, it was nearly a year later that Josh took the boys and moved hundreds of miles away and back in with his father, the disgusting and traumatizing Stephen. Now, I know what you're thinking. Stephen had to have known or perhaps played a role in whatever fate befell poor Susan. But actually, the authorities were supremely confident that Stephen had had nothing to do with her disappearance, as disgusting and vile as he was. Later, they would search his home and find his journals where he had expressed deep concern about the young lady that he was still so blindly in love with and that he felt Josh's hands were not clean. He feared his son had killed his wife. And after he moved the boys nearly 1,000 miles away from their home, Josh would also begin refusing to allow Susan's family to see her sons. 
He also became increasingly unwilling to cooperate in the investigation. And then a website was created for Susan where allegedly the creator would talk about a, quote, smear campaign against Josh originating from Susan's family. And actually, her family had at first been big supporters of his. I mean, we all consume this true crime content, right? And yet, who would imagine it would actually happen to one of your loved ones? Now, Josh tried to say that Susan was mentally ill and that she had fled with another man, but anyone that knew her, really on any level, knew that that was complete and utter bullshit. Computer images seized from Stephen's house in 2010 showed he had amassed over 4,500 images and videos of Susan taken without her knowledge or consent, including zoomed-in close-ups of specific body parts, and again, clothed or otherwise. Police also learned that Josh's younger brother, Michael, had sold his broken-down Ford Taurus to a wrecking yard in Oregon soon after Susan's disappearance. So the police ordered satellite images of the lot. When police actually found the car... A cadaver dog indicated that decomposing human remains had at some point been in the trunk. DNA testing was done and it proved inconclusive, unfortunately. But side note, could that have been Michael's DNA that was the unidentified male DNA from the house? One would think that it would show as a close match to Josh, but really who knows? That's just my speculation. In 2011, Stephen was actually arrested and charged with voyeurism and child pornography after it was discovered that he had been filming or taking pictures of an eight-year-old neighbor girl and other women, and including Susan, and they also stumbled upon his disgusting collection of Susan's, you know, biological material, you know, panties and so on. After Stephen's arrest... Susan's parents sued for custody of the boys, and they won. Josh was told if he wanted to regain custody of his sons or have a relationship with them, he would have to immediately move out of his father's home for obvious reasons. It is also important to note that Josh was considered a subject in the child porn allegations. Whether or not he was participating in that sort of thing, I wasn't really immediately able to find. But I do not believe that he had any disingenuous dealings with his sons on that front. I mean, I'll give him that teeny tiny little bit. Nearing 2012, so three years after Susan's disappearance, Josh went through some evaluations to determine if he was a fit parent. The court found that he was a stable parent. He had full-time employment. He had no history of violence or domestic abuse that had been reported, right? And the boys loved their father. And so Josh would be granted supervised visitations with his sons a few times a week and a social worker had to be present. Quoting directly from the source, quote, In the last week of January 2012, Utah police discovered about 400 images of simulated child pornography, bestiality, which for our international listeners is uh, sexual conduct with animals, gross, and incest on a computer seized from the Powell family home. 
The pornography had been cached when viewed by the previous owner of the computer, which had been purchased by Susan secondhand. However, Utah authorities misled the court and accused Joshua of having viewed the images because Susan had actually bought the computer from an LDS church member. Fascinating. The images, while not illegal due to them being in a hand-drawn or cartoonish kind of 3D format, were cause for, quote, great concern, particularly given Joshua's earlier denial of possessing any such material. Joshua was recommended to receive a more thorough psychosexual evaluation and polygraph test, but the investigator suggested no change in the visitation schedule with the Powell boys, end quote. A court hearing in the first part of February sealed Josh's and the boy's fate. Josh left instructions for his sister to pay his remaining bills, give the rest of his money to his lawyer, and then he donated all of his son's toys to charity. On February 5th, 2012, a social worker arrived at Josh's house to bring the boys for Josh's scheduled and supervised visitation. Josh answered the door. He hurried the two boys through the door, who were now five and seven years old. He then shut and locked the social worker out of the house. The social worker immediately could smell gasoline, and she called 911. Unfortunately, this call and the exchange between the social worker and the 911 operators did not go very smoothly. And within a very short time after, the house exploded flames engulfed the structure now i'm going to tell you what happened between the time that josh slammed and locked the door in the social worker's face and when the explosion happened if you don't already know then this is going to be a little tough to hear so i'm just kind of throwing my disclaimer disclaimer josh apparently took five-year-old brayden and seven-year-old charlie to the back of the house and attacked them with a hatchet. Once the fire was out and they found the remains, there were obvious, quote, chopping injuries on both of the boys' heads and necks, and yet they had still been alive when Josh had lit that house on fire. The official cause of death for the boys was smoke inhalation. The hatchet was found next to the bodies. Minutes before the fire, Josh sent emails to several people saying, quote, I'm sorry, goodbye. Josh's cause of death was also smoke inhalation. It is believed that the timeline was that he sent the emails, lit the gasoline, chased and attacked his sons with that hatchet, but became overwhelmed from the smoke from the fire. And it is at least noteworthy that Josh's brother, Michael, committed suicide about a year after this by jumping from a building in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. It is strongly believed that Michael helped Josh in the disappearance of Susan. And Susan is still a missing person as of today, though it is widely believed that Josh killed her, possibly with the help of his brother. So, A psychoanalysis of Josh was performed during all of this before his murder-suicide. 
a judge had ordered him to undergo, again, a psychosexual evaluation, which included a specialized polygraph test that would measure sexual arousal. And side note, I have seen documentaries where they use this very thing, and I believe that they wrap something around the man's, you know, the general, so to speak, to see if there is a reaction when they are viewing specific troubling media. So some think the horrible end to his story was a sign that Josh did not think he was going to pass. I lean more towards the fact that he was done with the scrutiny and the judgment and decided to take himself and his sons out. But you know, I don't know. But during all of the court stuff, all of the investigations and everything, he was psychoanalyzed. And the clinician that diagnosed him said he had an adjustment disorder and he was a narcissistic personality disordered person. So what is an adjustment disorder? According to the Mayo Clinic, adjustment disorders are excessive reactions to stress that involve negative thoughts, strong emotions, and changes in behavior. The reaction to a stressful change or event is much more intense than would typically be expected. This can cause a lot of problems in getting along with others as well as at work or school. Symptoms depend on the type of adjustment disorder. These symptoms can vary from person to person. One experiences more stress than would generally be expected in response to a trying event, and this stress causes a lot of problems. Adjustment disorders affect how a person feels and thinks about themselves and the world, and they may also affect their actions or behavior. So some examples include feeling sad, hopeless, or not enjoying things that you used to enjoy, crying often, worrying or feeling anxious, nervous, jittery, or stressed out, feeling irritable or like you can't handle anything and don't know where to start. You have trouble sleeping. Maybe you're not eating enough. You have difficulty concentrating, maybe difficulty with daily activities, withdrawing from family and friends who support you socially, or maybe not doing important things such as going to work or paying bills. And then of course, thinking about suicide or acting on those thoughts. Symptoms of an adjustment disorder start within three months of a stressful event. These symptoms last no longer than six months after the end of the stressful event, but constant or lasting adjustment disorders can continue for more than six months. This is especially true if the stressful event is ongoing, such as being unemployed or perhaps being accused of the disappearance and most probable murder of your wife. So for me, I think that I agree with this. And then, just like his father, I thoroughly believe and agree with the clinician who diagnosed Josh as having narcissistic personality disorder. I thoroughly agree with that. So again, according to the Mayo Clinic, although we went over this in part one, but let's do it again. Why not? It's fun. Narcissistic personality disorder is a mental health condition in which people have an unreasonably high sense of their own importance. They need and seek too much attention and want people to admire them. People with this disorder may lack the ability to understand or care about the feelings of others. But behind this mask of extreme confidence, they are not sure of their self-worth and are easily upset by the slightest criticism. So a narcissistic personality disorder causes problems in many areas of life, such as relationships, work, school, or financial matters. 
People with narcissistic personality disorder may be generally unhappy and disappointed when they're not given the special favors or admiration that they believe they deserve. They may find their relationships troubled and unfulfilling, and other people may not enjoy being around them. Treatment for narcissistic personality disorder centers around talk therapy, also called, obviously, psychotherapy. Narcissistic personality disorders affect more males than females, and it is often beginning in the teens or early adulthood. And this really jives with Josh's story, right? Because he did sort of a haphazard, half-hearted attempt at suicide, which I don't want to demean or diminish in any way. He tried to hang himself when he was 14 years old. Because of his parents, you know, his dad was verbally and physically abusing him, definitely poking him more than the other kids and so on. So this does make sense. Some children may show traits of narcissism, but this is often typical for their age, and it doesn't mean that they'll go on to develop narcissistic personality disorder. So the symptoms. Uh, they have an unreasonably high sense of self-importance and require constant excessive admiration. They feel that they deserve privileges and special treatment. They expect to be recognized as superior, even without achievements. Even if they make achievements, they make them out or their talents out to be bigger than what they are. They're preoccupied with fantasies about success, power, brilliance, beauty, or the perfect mate. They believe that they are superior to others and can only spend time with or be understood by equally special people. They are critical of and look down on people that they feel are not important or less than them. They expect special favors and expect other people to do what they want without questioning them. They take advantage of others to get what they want and they have an inability or unwillingness to recognize the needs and feelings of others. They're quite envious. They behave in a very arrogant way. They brag a lot and come across as conceited. And this sounds exactly like what Susan's family tried to warn her about before she even married him. I'm not, I'm not victim blaming here, okay? They also insist on having the best of everything, like the best car, the best office, and so on. And we see this with Josh's absolutely astounding spending when he was intermittently employed while Susan stayed working overtime, all the extra minutes, everything to try to keep them afloat. So these people can become very impatient or angry when they do not receive their special recognition or treatment. They have problems interacting with others and easily feel slighted. They react with rage or contempt and try to belittle other people to make themselves feel superior. They have difficulty managing their emotions and their behavior. They experience major problems dealing with stress and adapting to change. They withdraw from or avoid situations in which they might fail. They feel depressed and moody because they fall short of this idea of their own perfection. They have secret feelings of insecurity, shame, humiliation, and fear of being exposed as a failure. And this one is a pretty difficult one to treat. So I agree wholeheartedly with what the clinician said, specifically about the narcissistic personality disorder. And I do think that Stephen, his father, suffered with it too. I don't think Stephen had anything to do with Susan's disappearance. I honestly don't, as much as I would like to think that he helped. I don't think that he did. I think he was absolutely absorbed and all consumed in his love for her, and he would not want her dead. I think, you know, because he had convinced himself 
that she was just as much in love with him too. So him participating with or approving of this murder just doesn't really jive. I think that the brother Michael could very well have had something to do with it, actually considering the cadaver dog's hit on the trunk of his car. But, you know, we don't know. And unless some kind of secret document, journal, blah, blah, blah comes to light, which you would think it would by now, I don't think we're ever going to have the actual answers. There was a group who thought they may have found her remains out in a mine shaft in the Utah desert, but I believe it turned out to just be animal remains. So as of this recording, December 2023, she is still missing. So what do you think about this case, guys? Again, I know that it's been done to death. That dead horse has been beaten beyond recognition, right? But I thought maybe we could just go down memory lane, perhaps attack this from the psychological point of view. Um, although all sources are very careful to openly talk about how creepy and horrible Stephen is, I wanted to give some context as to family history or maybe some generational trauma or things going on, which I think very much is a part of this situation. One must be very, very careful how they conduct themselves and how they behave in front of their children for fear that their children might pick up on those behaviors if they weren't genetic, if it's a nature or if it's a nurture versus nature situation and carbon copy that into their own marriage with very detrimental ends. Those boys did not have to die. That is some selfish, selfish shit from Josh to kill those boys. But tell me, guys. What do you think of this case? Leave me a comment, please. I love to read them and I do publish them when I see them. Um, you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can join our serial killing, a podcast fan page on Facebook that someone created for me, a very beloved friend. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm pretty active on both of those sites if you want to interact with me. It's getting kind of busy, kind of crazy, but I at least tried to leave hearts so that everyone feels at least validated and paid attention to. So thank you so, so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I continue to really appreciate that, guys. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.